Today, you'll learn when to avoid Depakote, who to blame when your patient doesn't take their meds, and which comes first, symptoms or functioning. It's all in our updates from the 2023 International Bipolar Conference. Welcome to the Carlite Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlite Psychiatry Report. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psychiatric MP and a dedicated reader of every issue. Last June, we flew to Chicago for the International Bipolar Conference. And since then, we've been counting off the practice-changing updates from the conference. Here's a recap. One, screen for bipolar disorder with a tool that looks at signs and symptoms of the illness like the Rapid Mood Screener or the Bipolarity Index. Two, use more lithium. And three, move lorazodone up in your treatment algorithms now that it's generic. And keep Robert Post three L's on the tip of your tongue for bipolar depression. Lithium, lamotrigine, and lorazodone. Today, we're chock full of updates. But first, a preview of the CME quiz for this episode. You can earn CME credits through the link in the show notes. One, mood charting is helpful in bipolar disorder, but it is essential for monitoring which phase of the illness. A, depression. B, mania, hypomania, and mixed states. C, maintenance. D, rapid cycling. And now for update number four. Avoid valproate in women of childbearing age. Valproate, Depakote, entered the bipolar field in the 1990s, and it came with all the swag that branded medications bring, overhyping its benefits and downplaying its risks. Now, we see this med with a more sober eye. Its long-term benefits are not as good as lithium's, and unlike lithium, it doesn't seem to prevent suicide or improve any long-term health risks. While lithium prevents dementia, there's some new studies showing a possible dementia risk with valproate. But what has really put valproate in the corner is the risks for women of childbearing age. Valproate is more likely to cause birth defects than any other psychiatric med. It can also cause male pattern baldness, weight gain, and can raise testosterone, possibly even causing polycystic ovarian disease. But the main reason we're warning against it is for pregnancy. There's not much new in what I've just said. We've known since 1980 that valproate is teratogenic, but what is new is the way we think about women and fertility in medicine. There's been this old-school view that women are responsible for whether or not they get pregnant, and without getting too deep into politics, I hope you can see that that kind of thinking could lead to restricted access to abortions, as in women just need to use protection and abstain from sex. That type of thinking could lead to more valproate prescriptions. As in, the prescriber could say, it's not my fault, I warned her not to get pregnant on the drug. That's a nice segue to our update number five. When things go wrong with treatment, even if it's because your patient is not compliant with their meds, assume that it's your fault. That simple attitude check came from one of our Brazilian colleagues, who felt that physicians had a much better relationship with their patients in Brazil compared to the U.S. because malpractice is rare in that country. As a result, patients are more appreciative and doctors are less defensive, 
less likely to blame the patient when things go wrong. As our Brazilian colleague put it, if my patient doesn't take their medication, I assume that the fault is my own. Update number six. Rate the symptoms. If you're not taking some measure of mood at every visit, you are no different from a cardiologist who never checks blood pressure. Even better if you can get your patients to do mood charts. This is tedious for them, so we use a weekly chart instead of a daily one. You can find templates at moodtreatmentcenter.com forward slash measure. I'll insist the patient complete these if they are having rapid cycling, because that's an illness where you will otherwise get totally lost in the ups and downs, thinking your new med is working when it really just shot them up into a more vicious cycle. At the most basic level, ask your patient to rate their overall mood, well-being, or functioning from 0 to 10 at each visit. After 6 to 12 months, look back at the scores, hopefully in a visual graph. You'll pick up on a lot of patterns, seasonal depression, times when they got a little better on a treatment but gave up too soon, and then got worse. Many of our therapies take a few months to show their true effects, especially lithium and lamotrigine. And if your patients stop taking those medications, it takes a few months for the benefits to wear off. You're not going to pick up on those trends by asking the patient if their medication is helpful. Many of the talks at the International Conference are led by patients, and our next update comes straight from the leaders of the DBSA Depression and Bipolar Disorder Alliance. Aim for functioning, not just symptom reduction when treating bipolar. DBSA surveyed their members about what was most important in recovery. Here are their top items. 1. To be independent or act according to my own will. 2. To have a purpose in life. 3. To get through the day. And 4. Self-acceptance. None of those are symptoms of bipolar disorder. Hegapakiskel made the same point in his textbook, Bipolar Psychopharmacology, where he laid out 25 basic principles of working with bipolar disorder. Kelly, can you read number seven? Functioning is more important than mood stabilization. While rapid control of mania in the acute phase is desirable, overstabilizing patients with aggressive pharmacotherapy is unlikely to lead to treatment adherence in the long run. It is best if the psychiatrist goes halfway in meeting reasonable requests by the patient about dosage and the optimum mix of medications. Implicitly, the psychiatrist will still have the upper hand from a medical point of view, while permitting the patient some participation in the therapeutic choices. Once recovered from major episodes, permitting some degree of self-management is a valuable but difficult goal to attain. Vigilance is necessary to make sure that the patient does not take this as a mandate to do as he or she pleases, while at the same time reassuring that the psychiatrist is aware of the difficulty the patient has in entirely surrendering the control of the self to some ideal of stabilization that is in a textbook or guidelines doses or blood levels. For instance, while it is true that better control of bipolar episodes is achieved with high blood lithium levels, most patients cannot tolerate such levels, hence they stop it. In summary, the goal of treatment is not to aggressively over-medicate the patient to mediocrity. The psychiatrist should endeavor to help patients attain their best functioning without risking relapse. 
This is a more delicate art than helping patients maintain optimum blood pressure or blood glucose. But the battles over chemistry and health between patients and doctors as to who controls or is in charge of the patient's temperament, life and soul are analogous in principle in both internal medicine and psychiatry. The art of managing such matters, while fundamental in our teaching efforts, is difficult to transmit, yet they must be practiced. This is what makes being a provider fundamentally different from being a scientist. It is amazing how the current craze for scientific medicine continues to obscure this difference. Our point is that the issues involved are not unique to psychiatry, and to express our reservation concerning the complacency of many in our field who feel that evidence-based guidelines represent a sufficient measure for practice. And now for the study of the day. Efficacy of Cognitive Remediation in Bipolar Disorder, Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Randomized Controlled Trials. Ten years ago, psychiatrist Edward Vieta developed a group therapy for bipolar disorder. It was basic psychoeducational stuff, and it worked. It taught patients about the early warning signs of new episodes, self-management strategies, medication options, and the importance of prevention. Then Dr. Vieta shifted. He scratched this psychoeducational model in favor of cognitive remediation, a group therapy that targeted cognitive symptoms of bipolar disorder. There was little talk in these group sessions about depression and mania. Instead, patients worked on active exercises to sharpen their cognitive skills, doing crossword puzzles and reading books as well as working on ways to compensate for their cognitive problems, like using calendars, to-do lists, and organizing their belongings so that they are easy to find, using memory aids, and keeping a journal to preserve some day-to-day continuity in the midst of all that forgetfulness. The first controlled trial of this group approach was promising, Cognitive remediation didn't seem to sharpen cognition much at all on objective tests, but it did improve the patient's functioning. It seemed that it was the compensation strategies, the cognitive crutches like calendars and to-do lists, that made the biggest difference, helping patients to live fuller lives as they overcame their problems with planning and remembering. Since then, Many more trials of cognitive remediation and bipolar disorder have come out, and they've turned that first study on its head. Today's meta-analysis looked at 10 of those trials, and it concluded that cognitive remediation did sharpen cognition directly, but the effect was very small. And unfortunately, despite that early promising report, The therapy did not improve functional outcomes when all of the results were tallied together. Join the conversation and get daily research updates from Dr. Aiken's Daily Psych Feed, now available on Facebook, and as always on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Threads. Just search for Chris Aiken, MD. Tune in next time where we'll look at light and dark therapy in bipolar disorder. Earn CME for this episode from the link in your show notes and get $30 off your first year subscription to the full journal with the promo code podcast. 
The Carlyle Report is one of the few CME publications that depends entirely on subscribers. Thank you for helping us stay free of commercial support.